listening to Good Morning, the podcast talking all things grief with honesty and humour. Welcome back to the Good Morning podcast. Hi, Sal. Hi, Em. How are you, mate? I'm all right. I'm tired. I'm coming off the back of a week-long virus. Um, yeah, it's that time of the year. I think it's getting colder here and I'm just been feeling quite run down, but I'm okay. I'm really tired. As you know, yesterday was a massive day for me. Um, but yeah, I'm okay. Yes, it was a big day and we can hopefully talk about it a little bit more on the pod soon, but we were together, weren't we, in a very unusual circumstance. Uh, yeah. can't really reveal any more, but you've had a lot on your plate. And I think sometimes when you've got a lot on your plate, it's just exhausting. And then comes with it things like just feeling run down and then, you know, all that jazz. So you've got to take care of yourself. Yes. I've booked a massage for this afternoon. Good. A bit of self-love. I need it right now. So yeah, just really listening to myself and um, treating myself to a massage because I know that always makes me feel good. Good. It's important. And also, yeah. you know, self-care boundaries, saying no, all of the <laughs> things that we're discussing in today's podcast. So stay tuned. How are you firstly, before we get into it? I, I'm all right. Yeah. I, um, what have I been up to? I feel like everything and nothing, you know, like, have I been up to anything massive? <laughs> I don't think I have, have I? I mean, you've switched your room around. That's pretty good. Different oh, feng yeah. shui. Bit of feng shui, yeah. Um, yeah. Switched it up a little bit. No, I've just been um, I've been journaling every morning, getting up and writing for like half an hour to an hour every morning, which has been really great. It's um, something the writer Julia Cameron calls morning pages, and you just get up and the first thing that you do is just write. And it's a really good tool for like processing. So I've been really enjoying doing that and I've made it like a real habit. So that's been a good thing that I've been implementing every day. Um, because before I like would journal, but I wouldn't stick to a consistent routine. So I'm really enjoying that. Um, what else have I been up to? We've been doing quite a lot of book stuff, haven't we? We had a virtual book launch, which went oh really God, well. Yeah. How and fun was that? It was so, so fun and so nice to see so many of you. And basically, for anyone that didn't join, we spoke about the book, but then we had a Q&A, didn't we? And we all connected and spoke about grief. And I think it's something we're going to do again. So watch this space. But we had some really good feedback, didn't we? It was a bloody lovely evening. And actually, I've already set up the next virtual book launch so for all of our listeners in the US and Canada and that region of the world um, head over to our link tree on our Instagram because you can grab your ticket already for our next virtual book launch which is going to be Thursday the 4th of May which won't be the Thursday the 4th of May where you are that's 11 a.m Australian Eastern Standard Time so I think it'll be the Wednesday the 3rd of May yeah Wednesday in the evening so yeah go and check that out but it was so so lovely to connect with so many of you Sal and I were absolutely buzzing after that call weren't we we were it was just such a lovely evening and just so nice to see so many of your faces but also just to have a really wholehearted chat about grief and and to meet so many of you it was just beautiful and I love that you guys were sharing resources in the chat as well. It just felt like such a supportive, beautiful space. So thank you to everyone who jumped on that call. So today's episode, I I cannot wait for this one. I remember 
us recording and I'm like, I just want to pump it out now. This is the best. It's so good. Um, it is all about people pleasing and boundaries, which can be a bit of a minefield when grieving. And who better to talk about this than Natalie Liu, who is a boundaries expert and author of The Joy of Saying No, which is all about how to stop people pleasing and reclaim your boundaries, which I think we can all do with a little bit of work around. Um, Sal, you've been a longtime fan of her work, haven't you? So this was a big a big deal for you yeah like Natalie actually has had a massive impact on my life so Mm. I she has a blog called baggage reclaim and it's all about relationships um and she has written two books about unavailable relationships and she's also got a really good podcast called baggage reclaim and I think it must have been like 2013 I was living in Oxford I was in a relationship that just wasn't really going anywhere and it wasn't really healthy and I was really struggling and I remember I just randomly found her work. I must've found her blog. And then I like read her books and I was like, it was like, you know, you have those light bulb moments where I was like, oh my God, this is the kind of relationship that I'm in. I'm in an unavailable relationship. And everything that she was explaining and talking about was like, yep, yep, oh my God, yes. And like that kind of gave me the resources, the tools, the knowledge to move on from that relationship because it just wasn't working and I've just felt really stuck and like it's like I'm in this relationship they don't want to commit like I'm in like I'm just not moving forward with my life and it was really toxic Mm. so I have been an admirer of her work for a long time and she actually genuinely really really helped me so it was really special to be able to talk to her and also I feel like to be able to talk to her about something that's been impacting my life and our lives in the last few years, which is people pleasing and boundaries. And I think we, I mean, we talk about this more in the conversation, don't we? But grief and losing our mums has made us realize what porous boundaries we have. And I think it's the same for a lot of people, right? Absolutely. I had zero boundaries. Um, And also now I'm a self-diagnosed people pleaser. So we kind of already, like, I kind of already knew that, but speaking to Nat, I had so many light bulb moments where I'm like, holy shit. Wow. Like it was probably one of my favorite conversations. You Um, were like, just like, it was like epiphany (laughs) after epiphany for you, wasn't it? Oh, I feel like as well, the universe, you know, how Laura Lynn, everyone says like people send people into your life, like at the right time when you need them, the universe will give you podcasts or books or things like that. I feel like Natalie Lou came into my life at the right moment. So thank you for that introduction. Um, But yeah, one of my absolute favorite episodes, but you're so right. Like when we're grieving, we're so stretched thin and we just don't have capacity for things, you know, people or behaviors that we tolerated before can make you realize like how much of your life is lived to please others. Um, So it's a huge awakening in that aspect and loss can really shine a light on other areas of your life too, where boundaries are needed. So Nat talks all about Another big topic as well that is complicated grief and her experience with grieving her estranged father, which is a topic that we've been wanting to cover for quite some time. And we get a lot of messages in our inbox from people saying, hey, you know, I don't really relate to the connection that you had with your mums, you know, and I feel a lot of guilt around that um, because they had a complicated relationship with the person who died. So it's been a topic that we really wanted to cover for some time and Nat um, does it really well. And she's so open and honest and vulnerable in sharing her experience. So we hope that it helps you guys. 
And guys, before we go, just a really quick one. If you've read our book, Good Morning, Honest Conversations About Grief and Loss, we'd love it if you could leave us a review wherever you purchased it online. If you haven't read it, it's a really, really good one. It's actually been called Uplifting by someone, hasn't it, Im? So definitely check it out. Now, on to our convo. Nat, coming from two self-proclaimed people pleasers, Sal and I, we are very much that. Um, We've been wanting to talk about this topic, um, about people pleasing and boundaries for quite some time now. And it is something that I think impacts a lot of our listeners, especially since they've been grieving. And something that you've said is that boundaries saved your life 17 years ago. Could Mm. you start by telling us a little bit about your journey and how you got to where you are today? So um, those books that that Sal mentioned are inspired by, yeah, some of my own experiences, really struggling with being with emotionally unavailable and, yeah, sometimes abusive men mm. as well. And I didn't really like myself very much. I thought I did because I bought myself clothes and shoes and... um I guess I focused on my outer appearance and working hard, but I really didn't like myself. And really, you could see that in my romantic relationships because they were quite torturous, really. And I think sometimes my friends and family were looking at me kind of going, she's like, why the hell are you going out with this person? Mm. And so 17 years ago, I was told that after a year of being on steroids for an immune system disease called sarcoidosis, that the treatment hadn't worked. And that I would have to go on steroids for life to avoid basically being dead by 40 from pulmonary heart failure type of thing. Wow. And it really gave me a boot up the arse in there. And this person saying to you, oh, you don't have any options. All you can do is go on steroids now and sort of hope for the best, you know, type of thing. And I suddenly felt like, what the hell am I doing with my life? Because I had just gone along with whatever doctors told me. And I had been for a pretty torrid time with this illness over the previous sort of couple of years. And actually, when I look back, there were a spate of mystery ailments that I'd been having over a several year period. So I just in that in that room that day in the consultant's office, I stood up for myself and decided that I was going to say no. To going on steroids and he was he was shocked when I said it because <laughs> even I was because I actually was like looking around like who the hell said that um but it, it leapt out of me I realized I had to kind of fight for myself and a short while after that appointment I heard the word boundaries and it I won't say it was for the first time but it was, you know, I was going to, I'd gone to see a kinesiologist, which is like acupuncture without needles, you know, muscle testing and that type mm, of thing. Yes. We're all I about thought, the kinesiology. Oh, I love it. And <laughs> I, I thought I was going there. I thought she was going to be like, oh, you're allergic to this. You're allergic to this. And okay. Yeah. She talked about like intolerances and she started poking into emotional stuff. And I was like, oh, I just remembered. I think I've got an appointment that I forgot about. <laughs> not ready for that yeah and then and then she just kind of gave me this look like you can go if you want to and I suddenly thought to myself hold on a second Natalie like you leave here and you're probably going back on steroids because if you're if you're not going to face this and um she talked about sort of my self-hatred and the need for me to start having boundaries it's not like she told me how to 
Mm. I guess maybe she thought I, maybe she thought I knew what they were about. Um, but I walked out of there, and I realized sort of over the the the, the, the sort of the subsequent weeks and months that there was no point in me doing things like kinesiology and then acupuncture if after adapting my diet and and taking care of myself in this way, I was just going to continue being with shady guys, you know, dealing with exes, letting my family run roughshod all over my boundaries. So I had to bit by bit by bit, step by step, one day at a time, start figuring out where things felt off for me, where I needed to say no, where I needed to express my limits, but also actually a big part of it a big part of the boundaries thing that I think a lot of people don't realize it was a lot about just being clearer more authentic Mm -hmm. about who I was as well and learning to say no and having those boundaries you know eight months later I was in remission and have Mm -hmm. remained touch wood so ever since so since like April 2006 I've been in remission and my life just changed exponentially after that, you know, I met my now husband and I, and I don't say that as a, as a, like a happy ending, but so many things started to shift in my life from the moment that I started to speak up for myself, to be somewhat less of a people pleaser. And bearing in mind, I am probably a million times less of a people pleaser than I was back then. And still even the little bit that I was doing then made a huge difference mm. in my life. When we think of boundaries, we think of saying no to everything. And we don't think Mm -hmm. about the um, paying attention, like you said, like having more awareness about ourselves and clarity about what's serving us and what's not. And it's taken Im and I quite a long time to realize that boundaries are actually a very big part of self-care grieving or not grieving yeah absolutely because boundaries are about us representing ourselves and so Mm -hmm. we need to know the difference between our thoughts versus somebody else's our feelings our body our stuff versus somebody else's and if we don't that is where it all gets pretty messy so we need to know where we end and others begin And when we don't have healthy boundaries, we try to feel other people's feelings instead of feeling our own. Mm. We also tend to try and take responsibility for their feelings. It's like, let me try and anticipate what they might feel about this and then adjust myself so I can make sure that I don't disappoint them or anger them. Oh my God, this is like hitting such a nail on the head. Yes. Oh my God, I still do this so much. I need this conversation. Yeah, this is this is the people pleaser experience. And we've been oh. socialized and conditioned into this. And then it's like, what are they thinking? Okay, if I do this, then maybe they won't mm. think that. And maybe if I don't do that, then maybe they're not going to think this. And mm. then it's like, oh, yeah, I know this is my body. But it's like, oh, they're demanding that I, I use all my bandwidth on this. Or I'm on this date. And I say that I don't want to go back to their place. But then, oh, oh I don't want to hurt their feelings. Uh, you know, I don't want to leave them with a hard on. So let me go back to their place because I don't want to make them feel bad about themselves. Oh, I don't want to do that sexual thing. Yeah, but you know, then I'm kind of going to look frigid. I mean, we still say that about ourselves, even though we are way past teens. There's a lot of people who still have those fears. And then it's like, oh, I have this time. Uh, Oh, 
I'm not working right now, or I don't have any place to be. Oh, that means that I have free time. And that means that I am available for whatever anybody else asks of me. Even if I just want to have some time to myself, even if I'm exhausted, even if I need to rest. Oh, this is my stuff. Oh, oh, but it's not my stuff. Somebody else has asked me for it. Oh, it's my money. Oh, but you want to borrow money from me for like the hundredth time and not pay me back? Well, I can't say no because then I'm going to offend them and hurt their feelings. And on and on it goes. And we're so merged in with other people because I, I you know, we're raised this way where we feel like if we don't be and do as our family wants, mm-hmm. then they're going to reject us. And I might not necessarily say that, but I think society kind of gives you this message that you have to be a good kid and help out in whatever way you have been sort of told or directed within the environments that you've grown up in. And if you don't, well, people are going to abandon you or they're not going to like you or they're not going to praise you or they're not going to validate you or whatever it is. And then we just keep going into adulthood. And then here we are. Yes. Sal and I came from quite chaotic upbringings. Like, do you think that a lot of this people pleasing qualities stem from our childhood? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm right there with you with the chaotic upbringings crew. (laughs) Chaos queens. (laughs) Yeah. Here we go. And it does. It's, you know, something, skills that I acquired from growing up in a chaotic upbringing include like knowing how to read a room because you become so attuned to those dynamics. I remember talking with with somebody else, a friend of mine who also grew up in a had a chaotic upbringing and she could tell by the way her parents' footsteps sounded on the stairs, what type of mood they were in. Like she could tell that trouble was coming. And I, acquired the skill of being able to feel almost a shift in the air the moment that things were about to to kick off that that change in tone the 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 word used the mannerisms these are things we pick up from growing up in a chaotic household but also I remember saying on Instagram as, as we do it was a few years back where I said I because I grew up in a chaotic environment I never learned when not well I have now but as a kid I never learned when not to be on guard it Mm. I just remained permanently on guard well into adulthood because there was never a sense of feeling safe because yeah when things were okay you'd be like but underneath it you'd be a little bit anxious about but am I going to be in trouble is things going to kick off is this or that so much change and and so much second guessing yourself mm-hmm. and getting into trouble for things that that make no sense but somehow you got to try and make sense of this as a kid mm. it's it's too much it's too much for us as kids to have grown up in that i can relate to that and and do you think that second guessing yourself constantly then plays into this constant people pleasing yeah totally because <laughs> the second guessing is part of pleasing the people around you Because if you don't second guess yourself, like I got into trouble in those times when I was like, but no, that's not what happened. It was this. So I said this, or I didn't, and I'm in trouble for that. So then you start to second guess yourself because this person is saying this stuff or people would say stuff about you and you'd be like, 
that's not who I am. That's not what I'm about. That's not what happened. But you have a kid and you depend on these people. Mm. And so if you query things and you don't second guess yourself, you, you are essentially made to feel that you're suggesting that the other person is a liar. And that is a scary place to be in. And so we learn to second guess ourselves because it's a way of, you know, it's almost like deep down, we know what's going on, but we learn to second guess ourselves because that confusion, this apparent confusion that we have kind of buys us time with these people and keeps the peace, Mm -hmm. you know, second guess. Keeps the peace. Yeah. It keeps the peace. You go, "Uh, did I, have I, keeps the peace yeah it's not real it's not real actual peace but it it buys us some time what you said about like people that have come from chaotic upbringings like being able to easily read a room and feel the slightest shift in energy like I completely relate to that and it's something I always say like I'm really intuitive but I think it's just I'm just primed for anything to go wrong and I'm ready. And it's like a slightest shift in someone. I think, you know, even with mine and Sal's relationship, when she's had a stressy day, like I'll be so hyper, like sensitive and think, oh my God, is it me? Does she hate me? Have I done something wrong? Like we've had moments, you know, working through our relationships where I'm just super, yeah, I'm just super sensitive and conscious to never upset anyone. And I pick up on the littlest shift in people and think that it's me. Does that sound common? Yeah, yeah. That's that's like basically having a PhD in a chaotic upbringing. Uh, like that is a, 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 a skill from that. And I think as well, because of how we've grown up, for other people, silence means totally different things. Silence or a shift in things means totally different things. For us, because of how we've grown up, we fill in that silence or that seeming change in in somebody else's mood or you know behavior with what have I done have I said something wrong even if logically speaking we know it actually isn't possible for us to have anything whatsoever to do with what is uh, whatever the other person is going through we somehow go through this maybe maybe she's mad at me about this maybe I said so and and it's because of how we've grown up, we fill in those gaps with I've done something wrong. We go through this whole, like, no matter how much work I do, mm-hmm. there's still a level of me that does that, where if I don't hear from somebody, there's a little part of me that goes, maybe I pissed them off about something. That's because of how I grew up. Yes. Oh, my God. All the time. <gasps> I do that all the time. My husband's <laughs> like, no, they're just busy. Chill out. Like, it's no, it's definitely us. <laughs> We start spiraling so hard. So now, like, if people are, like, listening to this going, oh, my God, this is also me, or, you know, I'm a people pleaser, I do exactly that. Like, how can we help ourselves? Like, what are the things that we can start doing if we're, if if people are relating to this and and they they people please as well? So something that's really interesting is that, so... A lot of people think that being a people pleaser is a badge of honor, you know, like, oh, I'm just like such a people pleaser. And then there's another camp of people who are like, oh, people pleaser means doormat. And conversations like this are about educating people to recognize that a lot of the things that we just take as being part of this is what it means to be a quote unquote good human 
mm. are things that are basically people pleasing, which is where we we deprioritize our needs, expectations, desires, feelings, and opinions to put everybody else's ahead of ours so that we can gain attention, affection, approval, love, and validation, or to avoid conflict, criticism, additional stress, disappointment, loss, and rejection. When you start to pay attention to, well, what do I do to try to gain attention, affection, approval, love, and validation? Or what do I tend to do to avoid experiencing conflict, criticism, rejection, loss, and disappointment? Like, what type of person do I become? What do I tend to, what do I avoid? What do I do? What do I say? Mm. Number of light bulbs will go on because it will be like, oh, like, are you saying yes to something because it's actually what you want, you have considered yourself, or are you saying yes to something because you're avoiding saying no? Are you saying yes because you want to, or are you saying yes because you're avoiding conflict? You're avoiding some form of negative outcome. And having this willingness to recognize that some of the things that you take for granted as being your your personality. So for instance, you might go, I'm an empath. Nothing wrong with being an empath, but there is a fine line between being an empath and a people pleaser, Mm -hmm. because a lot of the things that empaths sometimes say like, oh, you know, I just like, I I feel everybody's feelings, but you're not also feeling your own. Some of the, a lot of these people are not actually feeling their own feelings and they're taking responsibility because they, they take information that they perceive about others. And then they're like, I'll just change myself and I'll just give up all the things that I was planning to do for that week. And so in, in the book, in the joy of saying, no, I talk about how the first step really is about getting to know your pleaser. And that means, and I say, do it for a week, but I do it, you know, as an ongoing thing, like I pay attention to, you know, noticing where, my people pleaser shows up. So for instance, I was with a friend a couple of days ago and we were, we were in this uh, antique store and she was making a couple of wisecracks to the, to, I think it was to the owner of the store, somebody who was in there and they were a little bit close to the wine, nothing dodgy or anything like that. But I remember feeling myself kind of go sort of freeze type of thing. And then I was like, Oh, that's interesting because there's no, nothing kicking off whatsoever, but I felt myself freeze. And then this kind of big smile sort of come up on my face. And I realized that it's, that's a learned response from being around my mother, who when she would make comments like that, it was kind of like, oh, she's about to complain or kick off about something. So my brain has gone alert, alert. Somebody's making like kind of, uh, you know, close to the wire comment here and running kind of a barbed joke. This means danger is about to go down. So it's noticing these things. Like another example I give is about how I was with another friend and we, and it was during, must have been the first or second lockdown and we were waiting for ice cream. And at this stage, we were allowing people to sit down in the place. So we were queuing, keeping an eye on this table. The people get up and this woman just shoots past my friend and basically grabs the table. And my friend goes, excuse me, we were here first. And no word of a lie, Saladin. I felt myself inside. I It was as if I had thrown myself over the ice cream counter like bombs were going off. 
in, internally, it was as if I'd, I felt myself, it was like I'd done a duck and roll. So internally, that's how I felt. It felt like if I could have thrown myself over that ice cream counter right there and then, I would have done. And as soon as I noticed it, I actually started laughing to myself. I was like, wow, it is, that's where my pleaser shows up. Because we think about our pleaser showing up as, oh, I'm going to go and do something pleasing. Yes, that's part of it. But it's also noticing where is the fear of conflict showing up? Where is the whole, ooh, I need to like paint a smile on my face and do some level of avoidance about something. Where's the tiptoeing and the hinting coming Mm. in? So when you spend time observing how you spend your yes, no, and maybe over the course of the week, but also Noticing where the people please are feeling show up. So guilt and anxiety, resentment, frustration, overwhelm, overloaded, you know, feeling triggered. Noticing where these show up gives you clues as, as to where your people pleaser resides, because these feelings are letting you know that even if, even if for all intents and purposes, the thing that you are doing is a good thing. And even if it's something you want to do, the way in which you're going about it is not in your best interest. You're doing it in a people pleaser way. So me as a, as a recovering people pleaser who was prone to overdoing it and perfectionism, I can want to do something. Yeah. Here we go. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) As I can want to do something. And then I, my perfectionist myths get in there that the wanting to please kicks in and I will overdo it. And so I've, I am now very vigilant about that. Doesn't mean that I, you know, st- don't do it still sometimes, but a lot of the time now I kind of go, do you really need to do it at that level? What I try to do is go, okay, what have you got in mind? How can you cut that back to like 70% of that? Because the odds are that I am seriously like overdoing it. I'm never really in danger of underdoing something. I'm always in danger of totally overdoing it. Yeah. So it's noticing where your people pleasing shows up for you. Where are you avoiding that conflict? Who's who is who and what kind of sets you off? Ends up making you feel a certain way that you know doesn't feel particularly good to you. That is where to stop with this. And then I also encourage people to, and I talk about this. I think it is um, in step two of it. Is you know get to know the baggage. Like what's the baggage? behind these responses and we've been talking about this here where instead of going oh well this is just how it is or you know I'm a bad person or I'm a good person because I do this it's like what's the baggage behind how I respond in this particular instance and when mm. I think about where I have felt thought and acted similarly suddenly all the lights go on it makes sense as to why I am doing that particular thing and when we can give ourselves this level of insight, we can stop shaming ourselves for the things that we do, but we can also stop doing things that actually are not working for us under the guise of, oh, this is what makes me a good person or a helpful person or a perfect person or the person who makes the most effort. There's so many things that I need to delve into with you from what you've just said, but something that you said, which I find really interesting is when you were telling the story about you and your friend at the cafe is you physically felt the response in your body first. Yes. And I think that's really important to highlight because it is it, your body will tell you before you can mentally kind of 
connect the dots that you're uncomfortable or something, you know, in your body is telling you this is making me uncomfortable. And I think we often don't listen to our bodies anymore, do we? And we can lose that intuitive kind of knowing in our gut, like that gut feeling. It's like, "Mm, don't feel good about this. And we stop listening to it, don't we? Uh, Absolutely. Because actually, because of how we have been socialized and conditioned as children, we have become disassociated from our bodies because we have been taught that compliance and being obedient, that's why I call it the age of obedience. The, those are the, the last few hundred, several hundred years, that's what it's been like for children. Like, mm-hmm. oh, you must comply to authorities and do as you're told, do as I say, not as I do. Go on, see what else you want to say and see what will happen to you, you know, all this type of thing. And we've become disassociated from our bodies. It is impossible to be compliant and also listen to our body at the same time it's just not gonna happen and what we realize actually when we start to pay attention to our people pleasing ways is that we've been so focused on what everybody else is feeling and thinking that we often have no real true sense of how we feel and so when we allow us to come back into our bodies we go oh wow i actually feel really uncomfortable around that person or wow i really don't want to do that thing and so we stop overriding our body so interesting. And you've identified different types of people pleasers as well. And Sal, I think you've you've picked up on which one <laughs> you are and which one I am. I'm most certainly an avoider and a saver. Nice. And so my pleasing comes into play where I'll avoid telling somebody how I feel or I'll avoid sticking up for myself in a situation or telling it how it is just to keep the peace like we were talking about before. And Sal, fill us in on your type of people pleasing. I think I'm a mix of a gooder and an efforter. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a sense of always needing to be seen to be good for me. And that's reflecting it in my people pleasing style. So really loved doing the two week challenge that you set out in your book. And I just noticed so much just by simply pausing and paying attention. It was actually it was actually life-changing because I think we just speed through life, don't we? And we don't notice how we're mm-hmm. feeling just to your point earlier in, you know, our bodies and we just think, Oh, you know, whatever. Quite often we don't realize that it might be because it's our alarm bells going, you are people pleasing. Something is massively wrong. So I really loved um, doing that, doing that exercise. And I just noted it in my phone in the notes app whenever I was, you know, noticing myself people pleasing. And it was, it was really, really um, refreshing. And I, and I've made quite a lot of changes. So love it. This is, I mean, this is, first of all, like you guys know, having written your own book and you know what goes into that. I'm really excited as well about reading yours. And so, you know, what goes into that and then seeing what you've shared in a book reflected back to you and you guys have been like, yeah, you know, I'm an avoider and a saver, or I'm a gooder and an efforter. Like I am, I'm very strongly an efforter um, with little bits of, I'd say probably an efforter and with probably avoider would be next after mm. that. And then probably, probably gooder or, or saver after that, but very strongly efforter. I am all about effort, <laughs> all about effort. And that is, that is the, you know, that is the rod that I that that basically is made for my back because now in my 40s what has come really full circle for me and I think that 
this happens to people at different phases. You know, my father died the year that I turned 40. And, you know, as women, we're conditioned into what it means when we enter into 30s and then what it means about us going into 40s and 50s. So you can imagine I was kind of going into a bit of a free fall. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then, and then, of course, the, my actual 40th birthday arrived. And I was like, <laughs> but two weeks before, oh, my God, I was like going crazy. But <laughs> there was this realization that I've had uh, literally since the year I turned 40. It's like, Natalie, you need to find you need to go deeper in finding your limits mm-hmm. because when you are raised to believe that you don't have limits and that if you're not doing something, it's because you are lazy or because you don't love the parent enough or you don't want to try hard enough. You mm-hmm. have no sense mm-hmm. of, of, of what your limits are, but also something that we must acknowledge about our people pleasing in whatever style it is, you know, and there's, you know, there's five, there's gooding and efforting and there's then avoiding and there's saving, which is, you know, the the helping and the fixing and the rescuing and, you know, basically kind of sacrificing ourselves for this. And then there's also suffering, Mm. you know, this idea, the more you suffer, the better it sort of makes you as a person. These are anxiety response so people pleasing is just a manifestation of anxiety we are anxious about something we're anxious that we're not we're out of control or that we'll have too much control or that we're not going to be liked we're going to be rejected something but then also it's an anxiety response so we're like oh we've got this anxiety let me respond to it with this people pleasing so i can get rid of this anxiety and tension Mm. but they are also what we have learned to do, to feel needed and purposeful and worthy. They are jobs, personas, things that we have learned to do as a a way to interact within our relationships. And when we can start to notice what our people-pleasing style is and how these show up in our lives, we can actually connect to the more authentic part of us. It's not, for instance, like, you know, Imogen, you mentioned about, um, you know, you're an avoider saver. So the thing is, is that you want to have, you know, intimate, connected relationships. And it's it's not, you are somebody who likes to, for instance, to, to help, but it's finding the boundaries with that. Because when you realize, for instance, that by avoiding, you don't have the necessary conversations And so that leads to you feeling a certain way because maybe you're going to feel unseen or resentful. You're going to feel frustrated, especially if after avoiding the conversation to keep the peace, they turn around and they criticize you anyway. And you're going, what the, hold on a second. I didn't even bring up anything with you. And now you're turning around and you're saying this to me. Oh my so, God, this is you all over, oh, isn't it, Ib? This is like, oh, <laughs> like, what is happening oh, right now? Im feels so seen and heard right now. I cannot tell you. Oh, I'm going through some stuff in my life right now and it's just so applicable. And yeah, far out. And this is me connecting with the authentic part of you where it goes, yeah, look, like you, I still have that you know my mom cussed me out like literally just last week and there was a time when her like going off on me I would have had an out-of-body experience I would have been like okay how can I try to avoid I noticed even before she cussed me out there was like my body knew what was coming and this calm came over me 
as it was happening and I was like yes this is progress not obviously not yes. at the time like but, <laughs> afterwards. but one of the things I realized is I've realized over time is it is tricky to have those what can feel like awkward conversations to broach the thing that you think oh gosh I'm going to be judged they're going to kick off whatever it might mm. be because our nervous system remembers yeah what it's been like right but the flip side of that is when we hide from conflict and we avoid having those necessary conversations, we are cut off from intimacy in those relationships. And then we end up feeling quite isolated as well because we're left with the residue of this, this unspoken stuff. And then there's a distance that appears in that relationship, but also the, whatever the issue is, it doesn't go away. Mm. It's, it, just, it just balloons within it. But also, you know, you talk about being a saver and there's nothing wrong. And I want to be clear here because some people will listen to this and go, hold on a second. I am a good person. What's so wrong with helping others? Nothing wrong with helping others. But when you do it from a place of on some level feeling that you are unworthy, feeling like you need to be in control of something, feeling that if you help this person, then they will have no reason to leave and they'll want to basically love you and take that's not a healthy reason to be helping that person. Mm -hmm. That's helping that person with her boundaries. Mm -hmm. And so there's nothing wrong. If you identify as somebody who, who helps, nothing wrong with that, but know your why. Mm -hmm. Because when you see what your why is, in, on, in those instances when your why is, I'm trying to avoid something, I'm trying to get, you know, control something, then you can go, but is that the way that I want to go here? Mm -hmm. yes. Or do I want to go another way? And Nat, something that you've said before, and I think Im is just like, oh, I need a minute. Oh, I need a minute. <laughs> this is actually, can I just like quickly, this is like my favorite conversation so far. Like, I feel like you've been brought into our lives at the right time. Like, well, I know you were brought into Sal's life a long time ago, but you've For come into right my time. life now. Sal's brought you into my life at yeah. the exact time I need you, Nat. <laughs> Thanks for being here. <laughs> oh, it's my pleasure. You know what? I agree though that these these conversations happen at exactly the right time. Yeah. Yes, definitely. And yeah, in this is all happening for you right now, isn't right it? Now. Real time in your life. So yeah. I'm so happy that you get to have this convo because hopefully it sheds some light. But Nat, something you've said before on your podcast, Baggage Reclaim, which is excellent, is that grief can bring out the people pleaser in us. So first up, how how does that happen? Like how can, because we've experienced that as well, feeling like in our grief, we, our boundaries become much more porous. So, so what's going on there? Why might that happen? So I think that, and, and this all depends on where you are in the world, because some places are, some cultures have a, a, a closer, more open relationship with death and with grieving than others do. You know, in England, nah. nothing wants to talk about nothing. <laughs> oh, somebody died. I'm going to cross the street when I see you next time because <laughs> yeah. I just don't want to have that conversation. Whereas I'm brought up in Ireland. Like you go, when somebody passes away, you go on to the funeral, you go on to the wake and, and you talk about stuff. And so one, what I noticed is that People have an expectation of how things are supposed to be when somebody dies. So as a result, 
when you experience a bereavement, if you don't like if you don't respond in ways that people see as the expected, then they can respond to you in very, very odd ways. So I'll give an example. And I think I talked about this in this episode. When our father passed away, my brother did not have a, a close relationship with him at all. In fact, he only really spoke to him like literally four days before he passed. And that's because our father, well, yeah, he abandoned us. And he didn't really give much explanation for that, whether it was in childhood or adulthood. And when people found out that our father had died, people were coming up to him at work going, oh my God, your father died. And he was like, yeah, yeah, he has, yeah. And then they were looking at him and he was like, oh my God, these people want me to basically like cry, perform, like say something that makes them feel comfortable about the fact that my father has died. And that's an example, for instance, of how the people pleasing shows up. But there's also, I feel like there is this sense that somebody dies and everybody has a certain amount of time for you with that, where like in the aftermath, and then you're just supposed to, once the funeral has happened, it's like, right, can you kind of take your grief <laughs> Somewhere else. And somewhere else. <laughs> and so then there becomes this sort of awkward thing of there's almost this expectation that you're not supposed to bring it up um, and that you, you need to move on with that now and do that somewhere else because everybody else is going to feel awkward about you bringing it up. So what happens to you as the griever, you end up thinking, oh, well, I probably better not bring that up because people are going to feel really uncomfortable if I mention that my mom died or my dad died or, my son, or whoever it is. If I mention that, it's going to change the atmosphere in the room. People mm -hmm. are going to feel uncomfortable. So you start getting into this habit of silencing yourself because there is this sense that me, my grief, my emotion. So if, if in fact, people might allow you to mention it, but you feel as if, oh, I can't display any emotion about it because people are going to feel really uncomfortable if I cry, if I am angry, if I'm upset. Like if you don't say the expected thing and then you're like, yeah, well, actually, I was really pissed off with them and we wish people are looking at you like, uh, oh, why are you saying that? Uh, can we kind of move on now? And then somebody will be like, well, I can't imagine feeling like that about my you know, parent or whoever it is. So this sort of cycle continues. There is this, I have seen in the, it's coming up to six years now, time and time again, there is this expectation from others and to a degree sometimes for myself that I must just play the game, paint a smile on, say the right thing, hide feelings, or if, the, if they want it, display feelings when they want you to display it. It's exhausting. And it, it can really impact on your grieving if you get caught up in that and depending as well on the nature of your relationship with the person who's passed or the people who they are connected to that people pleasing can extend itself where when you're around those people some of those people might expect you to rewrite the past mm -hmm. some of those people might expect you to remember that person very differently from how they are uh, some of those people will expect that because this person has passed away that you are now supposed to do certain things for them. These are all ways in which people pleasing can work its way into the grief experience. And that, I mean, that's before we even think about the pressure we put on ourselves 
about grief where it's like, you know, I, I took time off um, after dad died because it took 27 flipping days for the funeral to happen because hello, England really knows how to drag these things out. And so after, after the funeral, I took a few more weeks. So it was about, I'd say it was about seven, eight weeks. And then I found myself going, oh, it's time to get back to things. It's time to get back to, that's the people pleaser thing. It's time to get back to things. Almost like people will expect you to be back now. People be, will be wanting you back. This is a lot of time to have taken off. Bear in mind, I, I work for myself. So one of the reasons why we do that is to give ourselves that freedom and flexibility. It was like, oh, you need to get back to things now. Of course, I went back. Well, I was in for a bit of a shocker because you don't fit back into your old life. God, this you is just, it. yeah. You put this pressure into yourself. It's like, then you're surprised when you're like, oh, I, I'm feeling okay. And then sometimes you feel bad about feeling okay. And then sometimes you're like, okay, I'm feeling okay. Then you have a, like an, a, a, a tough day or a tough week. It's like, why the flip am I having a tough week? Haven't I done all the things? I've grieved. So now it's like, you're trying to be perfect at grieving. And it's like, I've done the work on grieving. Yes, it's um. It reminds me of a a conversation we had with a previous guest called Joe Betts, and she was talking about how she was trying to like beat the grief, like it was like she was on some game show, you know. And <laughs> and this reminds me of that. But um, but when I look back on when my mum died and I had to fly back to the UK and sort all of her estate out. And I remember I was just people pleasing left, right and center. I did not listen to my needs. I mean, I had to get stuff done because I didn't have a choice, but I was taking people out for lunch and like just thinking about everyone else. And like I was so exhausted, obviously, because I was grieving and it was a shock and it was so new. But yeah, looking back into hindsight now, I'm like, what was I doing? Like, yeah, but this is this is what, you know, when you were saying about taking people out for lunch, this reminds me of when after after I had each of my of our daughters, people would come around to see us. And next thing you know, I am making tea and I'm cooking and I'm vacuuming mm. and I'm tidying and I'm moving things around. That's people pleasing, right? Because actually my needs, after having a flipping C-section and, and literally just barely stitched together, I should have had my ass sat down on the sofa and those people should it be but instead I am like running around like a blue ass fly and a similar thing then with grieving like where you're like oh I take these people out to lunch but actually okay there may have been times and I, and I totally get this where actually you going out to that lunch that day may have been just the thing that you needed in that particular instance but there were other times when actually you had to force yourself to go along to that and the experience in and of itself really was a really tough experience for you that probably compounded what you were feeling 100 it's, it's 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 a it's a it's a tough one i mean i remember being the week after dad died so he died 10 days before his 65th birthday and he basically kept his his siblings his sisters off his back by having them plan a birthday party and we decided to go ahead with having it like he wouldn't have wanted us to cancel it and when at the party, they had this, um, you know, one of those projector screens up and it was showing, you know, various photos. And we're like, to be fair, it's both sides of the family, but on that particular side of the family, they're not really keen on displays of emotion. And it was really tough to see the marked absence of myself and my brother. There's all these photos up there of 
holidays, trips that they had done, occasions that they've been at. There's smack, an odd one here and there of myself, my brother, but we are markedly absent wow. from that. Mm-hmm. And it was hard to see. Mm-hmm. And I found myself getting quite upset because you're grieving, realizing like there's this real disconnect between experiences. You know, my assistants, and I love them dearly, but they had a totally different experience of that. I mean, they had, mm. he, he abandoned in different ways, but it, at least he was around. We didn't have that. And I felt that then. And then it was like, oh, well, you're around the earth, so you can't like sort of have this display of this. So I found myself kind of shutting that down. And then an aunt from sort of extended family came over and she just hugged me and she said, it's okay. It's okay. And she she took me to the side and let me kind of have the feelings that I wanted to have about it. But that's mm. an example of the people, please. We're not supposed to grin and bear it and pretend that that is, is not an issue. And to go along to these various things and to not feel all the painful things that come up. But if you mention that to people, they feel uncomfortable with that because they're a part of that. And they want you to gloss over that and, and say how amazing things are or how you're okay. And actually you're not. Hmm. I'm so sorry you went through that. That would have been really painful during that time. And, you know, I really mm. appreciate your honesty around talking about having a complicated relationship with your dad too, because I think that that is a topic that isn't talked about enough. And it is one that we have wanted to explore on the podcast. So if someone's grieving the loss of someone that they've been estranged from or had a complicated relationship with, like grief can look and feel very different. So I think yeah. it's, yeah, it's great that you're talking about that. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about your experience with that. So I think it's important to share for context that my father and I were estranged for four years. Mm-hmm. Um, before he was diagnosed with bowel cancer in June 2016. And we became estranged after um, I got married. Um, And long story short, it was because I had asked my stepfather who raised me to walk me down the aisle because, well, one, because it was the right thing to do and it's what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Um, But also because he hadn't, he just hadn't said anything. He hadn't stepped up. There was this horrible silence from the engagement until a month before the wedding. And in the end, both of them walked me down the aisle and I have no regrets about that. But I think because the family kicked off and he no doubt maybe felt some embarrassment or had feelings about it, he distanced himself. He didn't plan for it to be as long as it did, but it ended up rumbling on for four years. And it was incredibly painful. So I share this because... It took a good three months after our wedding before I realized that nobody on that side of the family, but my sisters and my stepmom were talking to me, wow. that I had essentially been frozen out. And as that settled in on me, the pain was immense. Mm. Like I, the grief, like mm. I had a TMJ, terrible jaw pain. I felt so low. I mean, I was just laid up in bed at one point. I think it was a good week um, with it. I had, I had to grieve. I've It felt like I lost not everything because I, but certainly everything was shattered in terms of my relationship with him and and that, and that side of the family. And the truth was out. And I, and I talk about this a bit in the book about how all of it, what the wedding did is it 
made very clear that the thing that everybody pussyfoots around, here's the truth. And nobody liked it. And so that was four years of, you know, in and out of, you know, various modalities, you know, acupuncture and kinesiology, you know, journaling, a lot of self-work during that time. And then he's diagnosed with flipping cancer, isn't he? And in that 10 months, then you're grieving that person while they're there because you know that they're going to die. And uh, we were actually all right because I'd already been doing four years of grieving. And so when we reconnected, we had this really beautiful relationship over those 10 months, but it was still really, really tough at, at times because I was grappling with the fact that my father, who would, I, honestly, I must have grieved that man a million times before he flipping died. I said this when I posted about mm-hmm. his death on Instagram, I had, he'd broken my heart and probably a million times over. Mm-hmm. And so I grieved him many times and I had to, in, in preparing for him dying, I realized I was never going to get all of the answers from him. I had to be okay with what I knew so that, you know, that's part of the grieving and some people get to do that after somebody passes. I was started doing that before we had even gone. And after he, after he passed, what was interesting, and we'd be flabbergasted that some people said this. It's like, oh, well, it'd be easier for you because you know you didn't really like him anyway. Mm. That's what some that's what somebody said, which wasn't true. Um, which is couldn't be further from the truth. And then some people were like, well, your father wasn't around, so I suppose you, you're probably like able to get back to it quite quite quickly wild like, honestly like wild wild um and over the almost six years i'd say the angriest i felt in grief weirdly was around the five-year anniversary mm-hmm. where it felt like these feelings started to surface about what had happened around the wedding it took five years wow. and it wasn't like i hadn't it had been a it had been a roller coaster, particularly the first year of, of it, because it's all the firsts, and it's a weird when you have a lot of firsts with somebody who wasn't around for a lot of your life. Um, and then I and I acknowledge this quiet anger underneath my grief, because I think that when you're a recovering people pleaser, that sometimes part of the your grief experience is that you're very good at kind of bucking up and getting on with things and being like, well, you know, we had a good, you know, we sorted things out, la, la, la. And you have to be aware of, but what could you be angry about? Not that you're trying to find a reason, but it's like, actually, I felt, I did feel abandoned yet again by him. And it was okay to confront that in it. And so something going through that, I felt, I feel, I always feel a bit low in the first part of the year, sort of, it's like after New Year, it's like, oh, the anniversary is coming. And so I sort of ready myself for that. What I do know six years into it is that, you know, I've heard from a lot of people who have had a similar experience to me of having an absent father or somebody who was in and out of their life or who they had a complicated relationship or they were estranged from for periods. And the grief is is it's the same but different because it's grief and so you will almost hold them in a higher esteem because they're dead and then gradually 
you're like, hold on a flipping second, it's still the same person. And in a way, I feel like my father has been there for me more in death than he was in life. <laughs> I know that might sound weird to say. No, I don't I, think that's weird to say. I've I've heard that that can be quite a common experience and like people, their relationship can evolve with the person after they've yes. died. Did you have that experience? Yeah, I, I feel like, I feel I I have a, I have more of a sense of of him now and where you know my father was a quintessential people pleaser as my brother said the morning after his funeral wow if dad just helped two less people imagine we actually might have had a look in from him so there was that sort of realization about quintessential people pleaser like even the 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 reverend who was doing the service like turned and got back up on stage after people were like answer saying about how he'd get up in the middle of the night for them and he was like basically saying because she was saying that he used to get up in the middle of the night to come and fix their car and he's like join the AA <laughs> what you got what you got what you got him coming in the middle of the night for you he's a quintessential <laughs> people pleaser so he was so busy pleasing a certain set of people he didn't have room for us so we were the casualties mm-hmm. of that that was a, a a frightening realization here's another one when you have a complicated relationship with a parent or your parents and one of them dies, the uh, the parent who's still alive can sometimes feel jealous of the dead parent. Because it's like, so I, I, I get the impression from my mom with some of the comments that she makes, bear in mind they've not been together since I was two and a half, that it's like, oh, he gets to be dead. So people get to think highly of him wow. because he's dead and he gets to be loved because he's dead. So you're not even... Here's another, here's another example of how I can really push on the people-pleasing buttons where it, it felt like I mustn't bring him up around her and that if I express anything about that grief, then I am being a traitor um, or that I am showing more love for him than I am for her. So these are such a complicated aspect of grief. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I decided the day after his funeral was to stop doing things from a place of guilt. And that doesn't mean the guilt is, is, doesn't show up in my life, but I now I'm really, really notice it. And I realized I'm tired of pussyfooting around people about him. Mm. Specifically, my, like I'm allowed to love my father. I'm allowed to grieve him. I am allowed to have the complicated feelings about him. If my stepmother and my sisters can make space for that, who were around him, they're far more than I was. Mm. I can make space for that. And whether my mom wants to or not, I'm going to allow myself to to feel those. But there are going to be people who have problems with how you feel about that. Um, my His side of the family are more accepting of that. Now we have far evolved our relationship and they, I, I do give them credit where credit is due. They have allowed me to, to say, actually, dad, was flipping lousy at being a dad to yeah. myself, my brother. He was absent. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean we don't love him. That's part of the reason why we struggle with it so much because we were besotted with our dad. But he wasn't a great dad. And it, two, the two things can exist. You don't mm-hmm. have to pretend when you're grieving that they were perfect. You don't have to pretend that the past wasn't the past. In fact, an important part of the grieving is just being really flipping honest being about really- what went down. It's so important. I, you've said before that part of grieving is cycling through the arrival at a more truthful place. Mm-hmm. And 
Last question, Nat. So complicated relationships and grief, it's a minefield. And after your dad passed, like how did you resolve some of those difficult feelings? You mentioned, you know, there was anger there. And how did you work through that? What helped? So journaling has has yes. been so, so helpful. Like just emptying out, um, noticing sort of patterns in what I am saying, trying to get to a more truthful place, but also just allowing me to be angry. Mm-hmm. I had to, I, I realized there's that temptation to want to skip over that really quickly or move on from it really quickly. And actually what I needed to do last year was just to allow myself to be angry for a while. And I needed to talk about it. And so, yeah, part of that was at the time, you know, I recorded a podcast about that, but also it was talking about it with the people around me. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think in grief, grief can be incredibly lonely. Even when you all grieve in the same person, grief can be lonely because you you have a very personal grief about, mm-hmm. about that. But also there may be certain things that you hold back on saying. And so I had to express that so I found that incredibly helpful I mean at the at the time I was going for weekly massages because you know I'd been writing a book and I've taken a bit of a toll but sort of the massages and going to kinesiology that helped you know what getting outside having conversations actually with him at times I know some people might listen to that go well but actually I was like dad I'm really flipping pissed off with you like you it really hurt me that you you let me down about that you hung me out to dry over that wedding and it cut me off for four flipping years I had never really fully acknowledged that in his death and it was a release to do that and and so it it was the lot of talking but having to sit with the discomfort of that and knowing that it wasn't just going to go away and gradually that fog of the anger did lift and I think the more that I spoke excuse me the more that I spoke about it the better I felt. And here I am, you know, so his anniversary is coming up in, oh yeah, probably just over a month now and a month and a half away. And I'm in a different space to where I was last year, where is <clears throat> an interesting one where my mom had to go at me last week. It's kind of a thing that she does that brought up anger about my dad from a totally different angle. And I say this because grief comes at you from different angles. You feel like, oh, I'm done. I've done this now. Something else will come along and it will show you something about something you feel that you've already grieved, but from a different angle. And so when she was kicking off at me and having a go, and she of course brought up my father or whatever, I was like, flipping dad, buddy, flipping dropped us in it, even as kids, leaving us at the mercy of this kind of flipping behavior. And now here I am, 45, flipping approaching 46 years old, and I'm getting a load of grief about this thing. And I was like, Dad, uh, and I needed to say that then. And then I was able to have a sense of humor about it. Like you, you, you go through swings and roundabouts with this. Mm. Be gentle with yourself. I, I cannot overstate how much journaling, including unsent letters, dear dad. Da, 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 da. So, so powerful for me um and I know it'll always when I say it'll, when I say it'll always be like this it won't be exactly how it is right now you guys know this mm-hmm. it evolves like it it, it shifts but the, it, it'll always be evolving and shifting and sometimes it'll feel closer to home than others you know sometimes it'll feel acute 
it's never really felt acute like the very early parts of it again but sometimes it'll hit you hard even when you least expect it I love that advice and the unsent letters is something that Sal and I have done it's something I do quite a lot with my mum she died by suicide so there's a lot of unresolved things a lot of things left unsaid and complicated emotions um so I find that so helpful it's getting it out you know it's kind of telling them in a different form you need to release it whatever it is that you're holding on to so I love all of that advice you've just shared Nat this is got to be one of my favorite conversations to date. Um, Sal and I are just, I, I'm buzzing. Usually I'm exhausted sometimes after <laughs> talking about grief for now, but I'm, I'm buzzing. I'm excited to get all these things and put them into action. Thank you for the work you do. And I know a lot of our listeners are going to want to find out more about you and your book. So where can they find you and where can they buy your book? So it should be available in all bookstores. Like, yeah, I know in Australia, Dimmix, I know that yeah. they have yeah. it but it's on your amazon and it's on audible and apple books and bookshop.org and all the places depending on obviously where you're listening to this and yes please do do buy the book you know if you can and support i really appreciate it what an amazing conversation what a woman and so many bloody light bulb moments hey Im. so many my brain was just firing off during that whole conversation i absolutely love her and again thank you for introducing her into my world she's incredible people pleasing be gone guys we hope yeah. that helped you um and taught you something about people pleasing or maybe how to set better boundaries or maybe some you know how to cope with um, a complicated relationship definitely check nat's book out and check her out she's a wealth of incredible knowledge and um yeah hope you guys enjoyed it bye guys bye